This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Not so very long ago, professionals thought autism was an incurable disorder. The notion of autism as an intractable condition with which no person can live meaningfully and productively has crumbled in the face of knowledge and understanding that continue to increase even as you're listening to this. Every day, autistic individuals show us that they can overcome, compensate for, and otherwise manage many of autism's most challenging aspects as part of their fulfilling and dramatic lives. Many of them not only don't seek a cure, but reject the concept. That's all well and good for adults, but what about the parents of young children who are beginning to deal with a diagnosis that they simply don't understand and are realizing that the only predictable things in their lives is unpredictability? The biggest challenge for parents of autistic children and for non-autistic people in general is to try to understand what is going on inside the head of a child or a young adult with autism. And in this part of today's show, that's exactly what we're going to be doing with an expert who has written a book called 10 Things Every Child with Autism Wishes You Knew. She's the mother of a child with autism, but also has spent a lot of time studying and trying to understand what it is that goes on inside children's heads, whether those are nonverbal thoughts or verbal thoughts. And she's going to be sharing her knowledge and some strategies to connect with all of us. I'm Armin Brunt, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Today's show is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union, which is proud to serve the Armed Forces, veterans, and their families. And if you're a member of the Armed Forces or the Department of Defense, they'd be proud to serve you, too. Federally insured by NCUA. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Ellen Notbaum, who's the author of 10 Things Every Child with Autism Wishes You Knew. This is the third edition. Ellen, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Let's have you start off, I guess, with a, a little bit of a definition of what you're talking about when you say a child with autism, because those of us who are a little older than millennials, I guess, would remember that there were... There was autism, there's the autism spectrum, there used to be Asperger's, which I guess is considered to be just part of the spectrum. How are you defining autism now? But... Okay, so as you mentioned, this is the third edition of this book, and the original edition came out in 2005. And at that time, there was more of a linguistic and maybe cultural difference between the terms with autism and autistic. And the reason I wrote the book was because the going definition of autistic at that time was pretty much pejorative. And my child didn't fit any of those definitions. And so I set out to create an identity for him and for other children like him that would place them in the light of being seen as a person first. And in fact, that became known as person first identity. In the 15 years since then, a lot of these children in the so-called epidemic of autism since then have grown up to self-identify and self-advocate as autistic adults and calling that an identity first um, manner of identifying themselves. And of course, however, 
however they choose to identify themselves as valid and legitimate, so that there's now this blurring of the line between autistic and with autism. And in fact, I use them interchangeably now, along with, as you said, uh, autistic spectrum disorders. Some people call themselves autists or audies, or there's any number of ways that people who who are on the spectrum themselves or live and work with people on the spectrum identify, and they're all legitimate. So, and as far as Asperger's goes, uh, yes, that was removed from the Diagnostic Standard Manual that's uh, issued by the American Psychiatric Association. Mm -hmm. The last one rolled uh, Asperger's into the... uh, autism spectrum disorders umbrella, but the term persists, and many people use it, and so it is still part of the common conversation. I think it's a great answer, except it makes, I think, for for those of us who don't have a lot of experience with somebody on the spectrum, a little complicated to, to pin down what exactly it is for those of us who are, you're talking about what every child with autism wishes you knew, that, in a sense, is saying you, you, somebody who aren't, you don't have autism, or you're not with autism. So, how do we recognize what we're looking at? Well, there there are a cluster of characteristics that are uh, common to many children with autism, and in fact, the the definition of every child with autism has changed as well in the 15 years since I wrote the first book, but you can't mm-hmm. change a book title once it's in the marketplace, and that's just kind of the publishing industry. But what I took a look at in this book and what has has given it such enduring popularity, I think, is that the things we're looking at here are core characteristics that will be present in some degree in many children with autism. All 10 of them will not be in every autistic person. Okay. But there okay. are these core characteristics that you will see over and over again. Okay. All right. So let's go through some of these here. I don't think that we're going to be able to get to all 10 of them. But the first one is, I am a whole child. I think a lot of a lot of people have a tendency to think of people with autism as being either savants or missing something entirely. And you obviously would like to make a, a, a broader, more subtle picture of who these people are. Right. And, and you only have to, we only have to look to our own selves to see that because no person is just any one thing. And there has been a tendency in the past to um, what I call part out children with autism and we send them here to fix their language deficits and we send them here to try and fix their social skills and we send them to all these different places to fix them when in fact They don't need fixing. They need to be taught in a manner that their particular neurology is receptive to. So I think the example that I give in the book is when you see someone with glasses, well, they're short, they're nearsighted, but that's not the entire definition of themselves. If they're uh, clumsy, that's not the entire definition of themselves. If they're fat or thin. It's not the entire definition mm-hmm. of themselves. And that's the same thing with a child with autism who has characteristics and they have thoughts and fears and ideas and dreams and preferences and likes and dislikes, just like any other child. Mm-hmm. 
It reminds me of, of something Temple Grandin told me when I interviewed her a while ago. That she, I think, a line that's been out there a little bit. But she said, when when you met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. That's very common. Yes, that, yeah. and it's true. I mean, but yeah. it's true of anybody as well. And the other line that that I have loved for many years is. Um, Dr. Jed Baker, who has been an authority for decades on um, social uh, teaching social skills within autism, he likes to say that people with autism are just like everybody else, only more so. <laughs> In other words, there are, are things about them that are either magnified or they're either hyper uh -huh. or they're hypo, but but they're all within the human experience, and it's a matter of teaching in in a manner that is meaningful to the child, which may be quite different than the way that we've processed, thought, or taught so-called typical children, as so if the, there is a typical child. <laughs> the next thing is my senses are out of sync. Yes. What do you mean by that exactly? Because I think in a lot of people, the senses are out of sync. We don't always hear what we see or we don't always quite have everything exactly right. We misinterpret signs. We misinterpret signals from people. We don't, I mean, so how is, how is it with autism different than for non-autistic people? So for me, this is like the core issue because all learning that we do comes through our senses. And if our senses are either in hyperdrive to the extent that we can't regulate um, the input and the effect that it has on our emotional well-being, or if our senses are under-responsive and we're not picking up the kind of signals that we need to pick up, that also affects our ability to learn cognitively and to so-called behave or interact socially. So what you find in, in many autistic children is that one or more of their senses will either be hypersensitive or hyposensitive. And the the kind of cognitive dissonance that creates when the whole of your existence is is all of your energy is taken up with trying to regulate the sensory input coming into your brain. It's like I equate it to like a traffic jam in the brainstem. And some autistic children also have difficulty processing multiple modalities at once. So, like, we may be able to walk and talk at the same time, or we may be able to listen and take notes at the same time, which is coordinating a sensory thing with a, with a fine motor activity. And children with autism don't necessarily process multiple modalities at once. And when everything exists separately, it's almost impossible to filter it in a manner that allows them to process the information that's coming to them. So that's what I mean by out of sync. Yes, we all certainly have our um, sensory likes and dislikes, but when they're all either in hyperdrive or hypodrive, um, it's not only difficult, it can be dangerous. I'm talking with Ellen Notbaum, who's the author of 10 Things Every Child with Autism Wishes You Knew. We're going to take a quick break. 
And when we come back, we're going to keep talking to Ellen about some more of the 10 things. I think we've covered a couple of them. We'll get to a few more. And uh, just looking at the complexity of autism and the autism spectrum and what it is that we need to know as parents and as people who may be working with or coming in contact with people with autism. All that is coming up when Positive Parenting continues. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening again to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brodder. For just joining us, talking with Ellen Notbaum, who's the author of 10 Things Every Child with Autism Wishes You Knew. So, Ellen, we were talking about the a couple of that we talked about being a whole child and the senses are out of sync. Uh, I think one of the things that is more stereotypically recognizable pro- probably to people is uh, language and communication and it's... I think people use it as a joke a little bit about the, the the literal interpretation of of things, and talk about that the way that that people who are on the autism spectrum frequently don't get subtleties in the same way that that other people might. Correct, and I will say though for people who haven't read the book. They do not process uh, nuances, idioms, puns, sarcasm, all of the nuances that come with our language. Many uh, children with autism have trouble processing, which is not to say that these things can't be taught. They can be taught. But the idea that children um, learn and acquire these kind of skills by osmosis is, is what makes uh, communicating with autistic children difficult in some cases. And, and what I can't stress enough here is that when we have a child who doesn't communicate in the manner we communicate, it does not mean he can't communicate it means that it's incumbent upon us to create a form of functional communication that is meaningful to him, not to us. I frequently run into, uh, all the time, every day, run into, oh, we can't communicate with him. Well, they're talking, they're communicating in a manner that is meaningful to them, but maybe they're not reading body language or they're not reading behavior or they're not understanding that this child doesn't have the vocabulary or that his developmental age isn't matching his chronological age and any number of reasons why the manner in which they're trying to communicate with this child isn't functional to him. So when we talk about, oh, geez, you mean I have to watch my language for idioms and all that? Yeah, you do. And it, yes, it can be exhausting to have to kind of calibrate everything that comes out of your mouth and keep checking to make sure he understands it. But they learn. Mm-hmm. They learn. And you learn how to communicate with them, and they learn how to communicate with you. And it's this incremental process, which is really rather wonderful. And, you know, my son started out from being a nonverbal concrete thinker, and he went on to, you know, he grew up, he was valedictorian of his class, he graduated from college, he works. Um, And it's very hard for parents to imagine all that when their child is so young and struggling with language. But the more you can put yourself in their frame of mind and say, how can I communicate with this child, even if it's not my chosen gold standard, the quicker the, the understanding comes. 
Well, how do you make the transition from the, exactly the kind of child that you talked about with your son being a nonverbal or non, non-communicative in that way? Because I think most of what you were saying applies to people who are, are dealing with, with spoken language issues. But if one person isn't speaking at all, how do you get a better well, sense of how to communicate yeah. with that child? I mean, not speaking at all and not able to speak and never will speak is another thing completely. And we could have a whole conversation yeah. on well, you don't that. always know that it's never going to be. people who are truly non-speaking accomplish. My son was not in that category. He was... We can teach him to speak, um, and they are really two two different things. But it's all um, it's all very incremental and team oriented. You know, we had had excellent teachers. We had speech therapists and occupational therapists. We had um, family members who were curious enough to want to figure out, okay, how do we communicate with him before he's able to express these things? And the more you're able to um, what I call listen with your third ear. In other words, hear and see communication that may not be the typical kind of verbal communication we see, again, as the gold standard. The more you see that there's communication in everything they do. And the more you are able to let them know that you value that communication and that you want to communicate and that you're there to facilitate communication in whatever form it takes, then you begin to see the child have confidence in the fact that he he will be heard and and that he feels valuable to us. And if we can't see that value and see them as capable and valuable and interesting members of our family communities and school communities and community in general, then Mm -hmm. really no amount of therapy that you're going to layer on top is going to matter because he's going to have gotten the message that we're not listening. So, so important to listen to every mode of communication they try to communicate through. Yeah. Now, what is the the deal with being visually oriented. That's an interesting thing I met. I've met a number of kids with, with autism, and, and a lot of them do tend to have a, a more visual sense. Is that because it's it's less subject to misinterpretation than words? Or what is it about that that that's, that's so seems to be there with, with so many people? Well, I think, um, I believe it was... Um the name is escaping me. Gardner, uh, Dr. Gardner at Yale many years ago identified nine learning intelligences right, and right. identified the fact that, that not everyone, even though the majority of school at that time was taught orally, is expecting everybody to be an auditory learner. It turns out that people learn in many different ways. Some learn visually, some learn kinesthetically through motion. Some are spatial learners who who are able to translate everything they see into patterning and that sort of thing. Some are musical learners, um, math-based learners. So for children with autism, many of whom struggle with spoken language, the default to either being a visual learner or a kinesthetic learner, learning through actually doing, seems natural to me. But the important thing to remember is, with any sense, um, if that's the one that you rely on the most, um, it is also going to be the first one to become overstimulated. So in terms of, yes, uh, 
many autistic children learn better visually and they do well with visual supports. And occasionally people will say to me, well, you know, the visual supports in the classroom are fine, but at some point you need to phase them out. And and I always say, okay, then phase out your visual supports. Phase out your phone, phase out your calendar, phase out your camera, phase out your to-do list, phase out everything that hmm. you look at that helps you get through your day. And then you have a little better understanding of of why certain people need that kind of information accessible at all times. Yeah. And I want to definitely spend a little bit of time. We only have a couple of minutes left, but on Mm -hmm. the social aspects, because I think those Mm -hmm. are the ones that are perhaps most puzzling to people who do not have autism uh, or who are parenting a child with autism or who are dealing with a child with autism is the, the social which can in in many ways be a function of all the other things that we've talked about uh you know the 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 way that they learn the way that they communicate but there are some social issues as far as being able to have friends or experience emotions in the same way that other people might talk about the the socialization part and and what the limitations are and what you can do yeah, okay, and because you said we only have a few minutes and this is a subject that takes years, <laughs> I will, you know, try to encapsulate it for you. And I, okay. and I will say that the, maybe the biggest distinction that I've learned to make over the years is that we talk a lot about teaching social skills. And, yeah, you can drum rote reactions into a child. But if they don't understand the why behind it, um, it's not necessarily going to be of use in in practical living. So the thinking has shifted a lot, and I do go into this in my book and some of the work of uh, Michelle Garcia Winner, who's kind of the guru of this category, is that we need to start with social thinking and not necessarily with social skills. And the, the analogy that she makes is if you start with teaching social thinking, the why of why we do things, that's starting with the roots, whereas if you start with teaching social skills, you're up in the leaves. So you've taught um, an elevated skill without the why behind it. And I think that that's, that's really where we start is when there's a disconnect with why do we do this? Why do I, I mean, a hundred social skills you can think of. Uh, why do we do this? When we understand the impact that it has on others and therefore the impact that it has on ourselves, we're more likely to be able to remember to use it in a real-life situation. So that's kind of the 25 words or less distinction between social skills and social thinking and why one is truly needed before the other. Talking with Ellen Notbaum, and it's N-O-T-B-O-H-M, and the book is called Ten Things Every Child with Autism Autism Wishes You Knew. Uh, Ellen, thanks so much for joining us, and just for for those who are listening, there's a tremendous amount of information and all sorts of great stuff in that book, so do pick it up. Ellen, again, thanks very much. Thank you, Armin. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network.
Scorpius has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is gonna help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth, spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, our baby is only three months old, but I'm already craving another one. My husband is worried that it might be too much too soon. Do you recommend having two babies this close together? What are the advantages and disadvantages? Unfortunately, there's no right answer, so I can't give you a strong recommendation either way. A lot of parents say that having two children close together makes life easier, while others say it makes an already stressful situation even more stressful. Of course, that's all in the eye or the nursery of the beholder. But before we get to that, there's one super important question that trumps everything else. Are you physically ready to have another baby? If your first was born by cesarean section, you might have a significantly higher risk of uterine rupture during the second pregnancy. But C-section or not, your body may not have fully recovered from the first birth. The only way to be sure is to talk it over with your OB. Okay, assuming the doctor has given you the green light, let's take a look at some of the pros and cons. On the plus side, they literally grow up together. When there's a small gap between the kids, yours could be as little as 13 months, it's almost like having twins. When the kids are more than five years apart, it's kind of like raising two only children. Your diaper changing, burping, soothing, rocking, and feeding skills won't get rusty. Anecdotally, children close in age, say 18 months or less, seem to have less sibling rivalry and are closer emotionally than kids separated by a bigger gap. They'll always have a companion. When the kids are entertaining each other, there may be less pressure on you to do so. In addition, the younger child will constantly be trying to imitate the older one, which means, A, it'll take less effort to, on your part to teach them, and B, the younger one will learn just about everything much faster than the first one did. As they grow older, they can be each other's greatest ally. They'll help each other adjust to new situations, like first days at school, and they might even be able to play on the same sports teams. It could be cheaper. You'll be able to get double duty out of clothes and toys. You won't have to baby-proof the house twice. It'll already be done when number two arrives. It might be a little better for your career, too. If you or your husband were planning to take some extended time off work to be with your children, having two very close together reduces the time you'll be out of the workforce. There are, of course, some disadvantages. The first few years are going to be grueling for both of you. Those sleepless nights and lack of time to yourself, not to mention the back pain, will be extended for another couple of years. If the kids were spaced further apart, you'd possibly get a break in between. You'll be changing a ton of diapers. It'll be hard to carve out undivided quality time to spend separately with each child. The kids may resent being treated as a single unit, which frequently happens, and the lack of individual identity. Having an infant can be tough on a marriage. If you're already struggling, bringing another baby into the picture isn't going to make things any better. 
One thing I strongly recommend is that you and your husband spend some serious time discussing these issues and how the spacing decision will affect you as a couple and as individuals. It's not a decision to take lightly, so allow plenty of time to go over your options. If you've got a question or comment about this or any other issue, please drop us a line through our website, mrdad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. But don't go quite yet because there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting Show coming right up. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Thanks for staying with us. The truth is, nature and nurture are in a delicate dance. If one goes too fast, the other one falls. Science tells us that early childhood experiences have the capacity to structure and alter the brain. That means you didn't just supply your child's DNA, you're still shaping it. And it's only by wielding this power that your child will activate his or her full potential. You are truly a gene therapist, manipulating and guiding your child's genetic makeup based on the experiences you create for him. Contrary to what modern parenting trends have told us, parenting is much simpler than we dared to imagine. It doesn't require formal training or a fancy degree. All it takes is getting involved. Once parents learn to flip the right gene switches, you'll be able to expand the limits of your child's potential and lay the emotional and intellectual groundwork that will allow him to seize opportunities for success fearlessly, naturally, and enthusiastically. In this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with an expert in education and psychology who's got 45 years of experience in brain science. And she's going to help translate the results of a lot of really fascinating new scientific studies into actionable steps we can take to be better parents and raise more confident children. It all starts right after this. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Dr. Gail Gross, who's the author of How to Build Your Baby's Brain, A Parent's Guide to Using New Gene Science to Raise a Smart, Secure, and Successful Child. Gail, thanks for coming back on the show. You were here a little while ago for your previous book about grief, The Only Way Out is Through. I was going to get some of those words switched, (laughs) but that, that was it. But thanks for coming back. Thank you for having me. I I really enjoyed myself last time and was looking forward to this interview. So I want to ask you something that may may seem like a silly question, but do we really need to build babies' brains? I mean, haven't haven't people been growing up from babies <laughs> to adults without a special program? I, I just kind of wonder about whether that's putting a lot of pressure on parents to start preparing for college admissions when their kids are still in diapers and things like that? Well, it's not quite like that. It's more like this, that we now know so much about the brain because, and it's kind of our last frontier, really, because we can see into the brain, just like now we can see into the womb, and we know more about that little person developing, and we know it's not like a little seedling, it is a little person 
that's actually learning and and growing in the womb. So the brain develops at such a rapid speed between zero, just in utero, and to the age of 10, that will have u- a child will have used up more energy in that 10 years than from 10 to 100. Really? It's an absolutely rapid replication of connections and synapses and by the trillions. Things are going on just dramatically. And, and what affects the way the genes express themselves, we now know has 50, at least 50% of it has to do with the environment. So we used to have this argument in education and in psychology and in science. Is it nature or nurture? Now we know it's pretty much a 50-50 split. It's both nature and nurture. So if the environment has a 50% impact on the way that the brain unfolds and the way that the brain develops and and in the way that the brain reaches its full potential, then it would really uh, um, be important to know what kind of environment is the best for the developing brain. What happens when, how does the brain develop, Mm What are the things that you can do knowing what happens when? What are your opportunities? What are the windows of opportunities? Otherwise, the brain develops in it just an, a haphazard way. It's going to develop genetically, but also 50%, remember, from the experiences that that child has. Hmm. And if they're just haphazard experiences from nursery schools and other people and so forth, then you, whatever happens is just happening haphazardly. Yeah. But if you pay attention, you can really impact that 50% because the environment has, really can express, can, can enhance or, in a sense, suppress your genes. You know, you have a certain amount of genes, right? and they don't all express themselves ever. So who decides what will, what will be expressed, what will be enhanced, and what will be suppressed? The environment. And so having an impact on the environment mm-hmm. has a huge impact in the way your baby um, develops. Well, let's skip ahead a little bit, and, and just <laughs> then we'll come back and fill in the, the gap in the middle there. But what are the kinds of benefits that you are suggesting could happen from this type of approach? Well, here's an easy one. If I told you that just using complex language while speaking to your child could, could actually impact your child's IQ for the positive as much as 20% over time, you wouldn't talk baby talk, would you? You would talk regular conversational language. You would use complex language. You would say things like you wouldn't give short commands. You wouldn't say eat, drink, sleep, go to sleep, stop crying. You'd make, you'd make full sentences. You'd say things like, Daddy's coming home. Let's, get, let's wash our hands. Let's get ready for dinner. Let's take a little bath. So you would constantly converse with your child using full sentences because mm-hmm. by doing that, you're building in your baby's brain 
an associative mass that's larger than it would be by talking to baby in short commands. So that's one thing. Mm -hmm. You have a shy child. We always know our children if we're around our children. Sadly, in our culture, we detach from our children way too early. We all have to work. I was a working mother. And so our children are really exposed to all kinds of people. And in caretaking facilities, mainly their, their motivation is to keep your child fed, dry, and quiet. So you're not getting the stimulation that your child would have when your child is with you. And you aren't seeing your child unfold during the day. So you're not seeing if your child is unusually shy or unusually aggressive or um, any number of possibilities, even delays, speech delay, hearing delay. So we have to really know our children to know what's happening with them. And if we know that our child is shy from the very beginning, we can create an environment that helps our child not be shy. And we create a new habit, a new track in the brain that all these neurons gather about so that we help our child by building his confidence or her confidence and trust in us, which then ultimately transfers to the outer community Hmm. so that they become less shy. And we can see shyness in the brain because now we can look in the brain and there are different parts of the brain that have to do with being shy and aggressive and so forth. And and so we can now um, help children very early. We can remediate their hearing deficits, their, their speaking deficits, and we can help them with their shyness, and we can help them with their aggression. And we can do this by knowing our children and, yeah. knowing, and, and knowing what kind of environment to create to remediate that particular situation. All right, let me, let me just have you address something, because it, it, it was hitting me as you were saying it, that I think you're, you're undoubtedly going to get some pushback <laughs> about in particular, the shy thing. I mean, I will, we can talk about the baby talk thing because I just had a big <laughs> argument with somebody a couple of days ago about my talking in full sentences to my children from the time they were born and somebody else saying, well, there are studies that show the baby talk is, is babies more, respond more. But, I mean, is there, you almost are suggesting that there's something wrong with being shy that it it needs to be overcome when there are a lot of people who are shy and do quite well in life. Well, there's a difference between shyness and introversion. I am an introvert, so I do a lot of reading. I need to restore. I, if I go out, I use a lot of energy to be with people, but then I need to come back and have quiet time to restore. My husband is an extrovert. He goes out and he takes energy basically from others, so he's, he's filled up when he gets home, whereas I feel tired and I need to fill up. So that's normal, and that's not a problem. That's our personality types. Shyness can affect a child's function. So if you have a, a child that's really shy, that's not comfortable around other people, that nestles in your neck when strangers come around, that gets frightened and fussy, that doesn't want to play with other children, this can affect your child's function. So we can help our child feel more confident and therefore more competent around other people. Now, that's not saying 
that there's um, that your child will ever be different than their personality is meant to be. It's just you're in, you're supporting their personality mm-hmm. so that it doesn't um, cripple them. It doesn't make them unable to function well around others. Will your child who leans towards shyness, will that child become Jackie Kennedy? No. But will your child be functional and comfortable around strangers? Yes. Because a lot of the things that we are meant to teach our children is how to walk in the world, how to interact with others, how to have a comfort zone interacting with others. And if we learned these things and, and created these types of competencies, we would, we would walk in the world much better. Talking with Gail Gross, who's the author of How to Build Your Baby's Brain, A Parent's Guide to Using New Gene Science to Raise a Smart, Secure, and Successful Child. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Gail. I'm Armin Brock. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Gail Gross, who's the author of How to Build Your Baby's Brain. And we were just talking about some of the benefits of of setting up a, an, an environment so you can have some control over the nurture part of the nature-nurture mm-hmm. combination that's going on inside of our baby's heads. But let, let's talk about what we can do in our homes to create an environment. And you mentioned... Uh, complex language, and I imagine that along with that goes reading and uh, other kinds of things, a minimum of television, a minimum of screen time. But what else can we do in the home to create the most nurturing environment? Well, um, before I go there, can I address one thing about the shyness? We now have many, many, many studies to show that shyness um, can be addressed. And a child that seems to lean towards shyness in genetic makeup can actually, by the time they're three, lean away from shyness without any uh, reference to having had a discomfort around other people. So I just wanted to say there, and, I'm, and in my book I list all those studies, Okay. So there, there are many, many studies about that. Now you're going to be surprised in what I'm going to tell you about what, can you, what kind of environment you can create for your child. The most important word in early child development, Armin, is bonding, just simple bonding. You know, you don't have to have a Ph.D. in education. You don't have to be a psychologist. You don't have to have any extraordinary education to, to do the, the best possible things for your child. You just have to be there to do them. You have to create a safe, secure environment that's filled with love and bonding. Bonding is essential. When your child is born, they only know mother. And if father has been helpful by reading to mom's tummy while baby was in utero, baby will actually recognize dad's voice. She also knows mother's voice because that's the environment 
that she's lived in for nine months or he's lived in for nine months. So basically he's been or she's been mom's roommate and he knows her smell or she knows her voice. So that's the only thing she can attach to that gets her a sense of comfort. What do we do in our culture? We immediately separate. We take our child after birth and put them in a separate room and separate them from all they know as security and comfort. So if we create a bonding environment, if we talk to our babies, we cuddle, we coo, when we bathe them, we talk to them, and we read to them, and we sing to them, all of those simple activities that mothers and fathers have been doing from time eternal, but if they're done, and if they're done consistently, they're creating those snap, crackle, and pop experiences that are actually forming the person that child is meant to be or is going to be in the future. So that bonding builds security. Security lowers anxiety. The, the, the danger towards the developing brain is cortisol. Cortisol is one of the hormones that is connected with stress. Mm-hmm. And when baby is consistently stressed, he or she overproduces cortisol, and that cortisol will flood the brain and change, if it's consistent, brain architecture mm-hmm. and impulse control. Now, this can even happen when baby is in utero. Now we can look in utero. We can measure baby sucking and moving and so forth, all while baby is in mom's womb. And so if mother is upset, she doesn't want her baby, she doesn't like her job, or she's having a bad marriage, whatever is going on, if she's upset consistently, she's overproducing cortisol. And what is it doing? It's crossing the placenta. Sure. And when it gets into baby, it's exciting baby. It's overstimulating baby. So some children are born, basically, I like to say, on high alert. Now, we think these babies maybe have ADD or, or HADD, but actually, ADHD, but actually they are just on high alert because they've had an overdose of cortisol while in utero. Now, these children, for all of their lives, will be on a, more tense than other children, more anxious than other children, worry mm. more than other children. And we would say, well, it's in the genes. But actually, it has to do with the genes and the environment, the environment that was created for them in mother's womb. So. Mm. That early, and you know, now that we can see into the womb, we can see that if there are twins in the room, in the womb, they fight, they love, they try to sidle up to one another, and, the, and there's move their sacks close to each other. They try to put their cheeks next to each other. They they push off of mother's uterus when they're happy. They, they have this whole uh, working environment or living environment yeah. Yeah. while they're in the womb, and so. In at the most important thing is bonding after birth and before birth. And if you've read that book to your baby while in utero, when she's fussy out of utero in in, in her now yeah, life, try that book. That you read that same book, you'll yeah. calm her down or calm him down yeah. immediately. L- let me let me have you now go also, back also, a little bit though. Let me just say also free play, so the children have the chance to be creative. So you want to create a safe environment. 
that they can explore and investigate, and you want them to be able to manipulate things and handle things. Because they push out, they'll look back. If you're there, they have confidence, they'll push out again. And they keep exploring their environment. And everything they touch, everything they handle, everything they hear, everything they taste is growing them. It's mm-hmm. creating that associative mass. And you have control with, of everything they manipulate and everything they touch, etc. So what I'm thinking about here is there's so much politics that's, that's almost heading in this direction. And, and the constant talk about income inequality and outcomes are better, health outcomes and many other outcomes are better for people with more education or more money. And I'm I'm thinking, how what do you tell people who don't have the luxury of being able to spend more time with their child playing and and encouraging that their both parents are working, they need both parents to work, or they're single parent families and they have to have a child in daycare? Can you overcome these things? You know, you always ask the best questions. This a, this is a central brilliant question and as I said earlier I had to work I was a working mother and I didn't have a choice and I didn't like it but it was what I had to do and so at the end of the day and and then some mothers like to work and they're better suited to work but at the end of the day we have to compensate for time away from our children there's just no two ways about it and if we don't We'll have that child that's overactively anxious, and it, that consistent anxiety will change your baby's brain forever, forever. Changes brain architecture and impulse control. We know when children are adopted from Romania or China, and they're left institutionalized where they're cleaned yeah, and fed, right. but they're not handled. They're kept quiet, but they're not played with. They're not talked to. And what happens? There are all these deficits that after three can't be remediated. And these children have, if we look at their brains, they look like they have post-traumatic stress disorder. We can see these things in the brain. The hippocampus, where learning and reading come from, is more narrow when children are basically deprived of enough holding and and talking and, and handling. We call this failure to thrive. So we must compensate for time alone. In the best of all possible worlds, mothers could work near their children when their children were in the nursery environment. The nursery could be near the workplace, and mother could take a break and go see her baby, and baby would expect her to come and so wouldn't be anxious, would stay calm. And we can measure baby's anxiety by just taking a sample of their saliva and measuring the cortisol level as it elevates hour by hour exponentially as baby is separated from mother. So we can do things to remedy if we can have lunch, take our lunch break and be with baby. It's not easy being a parent, but the things that we can do are just common sense. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take a lot of money. In fact, there are many studies, a famous one in England, all these are in my book, where children in early childhood that didn't have a lot of money but did get the attention, the compensation, compensatory attention from their parents. 
that they did just as well as children that had luxuries and lots of money. Because remember, parents can have lots of money and leave your child with lots of nannies and babysitters. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's not a a guarantee of success to have a lot of money. And at the end of the day, if we compensate for time away, we have to remember that what we're creating is our future. These babies are going to be running the world. And at the end of, at the, end of the day, what we give to them is what they're going to give back. And so we have to be, then they don't ask to be born. So a child comes along, and I was a working mother who was so tired when I, I taught school and when I came home. You, you know the, 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 the routine. You're marking papers at night <laughs> and doing lesson plans. There's just not enough hours in the day. And also being a wife and a mother. And I did what most working parents have to do or have to decide to do if they want a family, and that's to override their own exhaustion and give time to their children. I have a niece, several nieces that work. When they come home, they spend time with bathing and reading and feeding and that, those few hours until baby goes to bed, they give total focus to their baby. Even though they're pooped, they're yeah. really tired. They want to put their feet up, listen to the news, talk to their husband. You have to. And the weekends are precious for families. And it's not, even though you, when you have little children, you think you want to use that time to shop or be with friends. If you have little children, you have to make that time for them. Yep. It, it's not easy being a parent. But it, it's important, the, probably the most important job you'll ever have. You're creating yep. the future, really. And, and you we're have, to, have make to family time on the weekends. That doesn't mean that you have to sacrifice your life. You can make dinner engagements to go out in the evening or time to be with friends. But you should put your children to sleep first so that they don't feel anxious and, and left behind until... Right. They're older, and they can understand that you're going to return. Gail, we're going to have to leave it there. We're out of time. Gail Gross, the author of How to Build Your Baby's Brain, A Parent's Guide to Using New Gene Science to Raise a Smart, Secure, and Successful Child. Gail, thanks again for coming on. Great to have you. Thank you, and I want you to know that there's several chapters of the book that are going to be online, and we have won the Parenthood Product Award, and we sold out in the first three weeks, but everything is back on Amazon back on my website, and back on um, all social media Good. and all my blogs. So Excellent. Thank all right. you so much, Armin, once Thanks again. Thanks again, Gail. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And a special shout-out to the folks at Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They proudly serve the Armed Forces, Department of Defense, veterans, and their families. Federally insured by NCUA. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.